morning, everybody. Again, have your Bible this morning? Good. A couple of you do. Turn to Genesis chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack right in front of you. Beckmans, are you, are you, guys, you guys good? I didn't realize all three. I didn't put that together, all three of them. You staying hydrated? Lots of, lots of tears flowing? Man, that's incredible. Good for, good for you guys. All right, so we are about a month into a 12-week study that we're calling Old Testament Overview. We're trying to get to high altitude and look at the narrative of the Old Testament, try to see how the story of redemption unfolds in the Old Testament, how it connects to the gospel. We believe that the Bible is one book with one author and one message, and we want to see how all of that is connected. We believe that the better we understand the gospel, the better we'll understand the Old Testament, and the better we understand the Old Testament, the better we'll understand the gospel. We want to see all of this connected. And the more we understand these things, the more we fall in love with the God who is revealed in this word. Uh, the more we will worship him, the more we will serve him. We're not just intellectuals here. We're not gathered together to be scholars. We're gathered together to be passionate worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to see him better and better all the time. Last week we looked at a period of Old Testament history called the Patriarchal Period. We saw God chose Abraham and his family to be his special people. We saw that God made a covenant with them and certain promises to them to give them uh, a great nation and a land and through them to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. This week we'll see the next step uh, of this chosen people of God. It's a bit of a detour, so to speak, as we look at them in Egypt. So, so far in these last four weeks, we've seen the period from the creation to the flood. We called that the antediluvian period. If you have that colorful sheet, now would be the time to get it out. Then we saw from the, from the uh, flood to the call of Abraham, we call that the post-diluvian period. Then last week we saw from the call of Abraham to the arrival in Egypt, we would call that the patriarchal period. Today we're going to look at the time from the move to Egypt right up to the Red Sea, to the parting of the Red Sea. We're not going to quite go into the Red Sea today. We'll get that next week, and we'll call that uh, the Exodus proper, so to speak. So uh, if you have your Bible, you're at Genesis chapter 50. Let's pray together before we get started. God, we do want to understand today. We, we want to understand this story in the Old Testament. We want to understand how it's connected to the gospel message we want to understand these things, but not so that our heads will be filled with knowledge, but so that our hearts will be full of worship and our lives will be full of service and devotion to you. God, we want you to transform our lives today by the power of your word, by your grace. So we pray that you'll do what only you can do in this place today. I pray that what people hear is better than what I preach. I pray that what they hear is from you, a word from you with power and authority into their lives that will change them forever for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the way we're going to approach this today is we're going to look at some of the major events that happened in this period of the Exodus, first 13 chapters of the book of Exodus. And we're going to look at each one of those major events and try to draw out some applications from each of those events. So it'll be a little different than normal. Usually we wait to make the application to the very end, but today we're going to make the applications kind of as we're going along. And the first major event that we see is Israel's move to Egypt. Israel moves to Egypt. This is where we left off last week. And we know that it happened through a series of sinful events. And through those sinful events and the choices of sinful men, Joseph 
ends up in Egypt, second in command of all of Egypt during a time of famine. Um, we talked Sunday night about a musical that was written years and years and years ago called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I posted a link to that on Twitter this week. And maybe some of you watched it. I know I watched it. And then Laura later watched it with our kids. And so they know the songs that go with this story of Joseph going to Egypt and sparing, uh, being, being used by God to spare his whole family during a time of famine. And later, at the end of that story... All of Joseph's brothers and his father, his whole family, they moved to Egypt because in Egypt there is food because God took Joseph to Egypt. What I want you to see in Genesis chapter 50 is absolutely huge. At the end of this story, as Israel is in Egypt, something big happens. Pick it up in verse 15. Genesis chapter 50 verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us? And pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. Remember how they tried to kill him and then they sold him into slavery? What if he pays us back? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now the brothers say, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, this is huge. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You catch that? He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Spared many lives through these sinful actions. We know that there were about 70 people that traveled to Egypt with Joseph or with with Joseph's brothers when they came. In fact, if you look at it in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, we'll see that this move to Egypt included only 70 people. God's word says, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So 70 of them made their way to Egypt. And maybe the point that we need to draw out of this first event, when Israel moves to Egypt, is that God is working in ways that we cannot imagine. Even when it seems things are spinning out of control, even through the actions of sinful men, he has the whole world in his hands. And he is working all things according to his purpose. Even when it seems to be spinning out of control. Even when sinful men seem to be having their way. And I think that's a good word for us today. I think it is good for us to step back and when we look at the world that seems to be out of control and it seems that sinful men are having their way, we need to remember this story and say God is always in control. He is always working things according to the counsel of his will. That is encouraging to us on this day. So first event number one, Israel moves to Egypt. The second thing that happens in Exodus is 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. As we look at the narrative of the Old Testament, as we look at these thousands of years that are covered, this actually happens twice. There are two major gaps where God seems to be silent, 400 years at a time. 
There seems to be no record of God saying anything, and it seems like he isn't doing anything. The other one of these 400 years per- year periods is at the end of the Old Testament between Malachi and Matthew. Seems to be silence from God from that last prophet until John the Baptist shows up on the scene. But here in the storyline of Exodus, there's about 400 years where it seems like God isn't doing anything. And we get that number from later on in Exodus in chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. You can look at that and it basically gives this outline of 430 years uh, from when they came to when they left. And so there would be about 400 years of silence there. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says... That during those years of silence, the nation is multiplying. During those 400 years, they are multiplying. Look at Exodus 1.7. It says, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So they came to Egypt. How many people? When they moved to Egypt, there were 70 of them, right? We know that when we look at the end of the Exodus story, when they leave Egypt, there's more like 2 million of them. In fact, if you want to flip over there to chapter 12, verse 37, it says, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. So if there's 600 men... Not to mention the children, also not to mention the women. Most scholars would estimate the population of Israel when they leave Egypt to be about 2 million people. So the point we want to see here is that during that 400 years of silence, they multiply from 70 to 2 million. You catch that? So it's not as if nothing is happening. And maybe that's the application from this period of time. That even when it seems that God is silent, even when he doesn't say anything, he is not absent. He may be quiet, but he is not dead. And sometimes he works in the spotlight. Sometimes God is at work way out in the spotlight so that everyone can see. And we're going to see that a little bit later when we deal with the plagues. But sometimes God is working behind the scenes in very quiet ways, in very normal ways. But I want you to know that even when he is silent, he is not asleep. Even when he is quiet, he is still working as Israel grows from 70 people to 2 million people during this 400 years of silence. The third major event that happens is a new king comes to power. A new king, a new Pharaoh comes to power and this Pharaoh fears God's people and he tries to oppress them. Look at Exodus 1 verse 12. It says, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out so that they were the dread of the sons. They were in dread of the sons of Israel. You catch that? This new Pharaoh comes to power. The old one dies and he doesn't know anything about Joseph. He doesn't know anything about these people. And he sees these people multiplying and getting bigger and bigger. And he says, this is dangerous for us. If somebody comes to fight us, now all these Israelites who live in our land, they'll fight with our enemy against us. And he says, we've got to stop this. We've got to crush these people. We've got to oppress them. And we've got to cause them trouble. We know that the first thing he tries to do is he tries to afflict them with hard labor. They were already servants, they were already slaves, but he tries to make their labor even more intense. And when that fails, he tries to tell the midwives that were giving birth to the Hebrew children to kill all the boys. 
But the, the Hebrew midwives feared God and they wouldn't do this. And so they let these boys live. And then the Pharaoh said, we've got to do something about these people. And so we'll command them that every son that is born to an Israelite must be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. You see how this king was trying to stop the growth of God's people? But did you catch in the text that it said all of his efforts to stop them only served to spread them out? only serve to accelerate the growth. And maybe that's the lesson. Maybe that's the lesson we learn over and over and over again in Scripture and throughout church history, is that when God is at work, whether he's working behind the scenes or out in the spotlight, there will be opposition, right? We call Satan, Scripture calls Satan the adversary. He is our opponent. There will be opposition, but here's the good news. We see it over and over and over again that attempts to stop the movement of God only serve to increase the movement of God. That when Satan employs all of his demons and spirits and workers and whatever to try to stop the spread of God's people, to try to stop the spread of the gospel, it actually only serves to promote the spread of God's people and to promote the spread of the gospel. We see this specifically in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are out preaching the gospel with boldness, right? And so people come in and say, you got to stop this. you got to stop this preaching. And guess what they do? They don't stop preaching. They keep on preaching. And other people are encouraged to preach in the face of the opposition. This is what it says in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. These are the bad guys. They flogged the good guys. And ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they went on their way, this is the disciples from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching. They kept right on preaching Jesus as the Christ. We see this this specifically after the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that comes up in Acts after the stoning of Stephen, which we've looked at in Sunday school just recently. When that happens, the people have to spread out. The followers of Jesus have to spread out from Jerusalem. And when they spread out for Jerusalem in fear of their lives, guess what they do? They go to all these other cities. And guess what they do when they go to all these other cities? They start telling them that Jesus is the Christ. And churches are planted. And the gospel spreads and really takes over the world at that time. So what I want you to see is that when God is at work, there will be opposition. But... Over and over and over again, we see that in spite of the opposition, maybe even because of the opposition, the kingdom still grows. Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So church, we should not be afraid. We should not be afraid of persecution. We should not be afraid of threats. We should not be afraid of dispersions that might happen. We should see them as God spreading his church all over the world. And he was doing it back then as well. So the third thing that happens is a new king comes to power. This new king fears God's people. He tries to oppress them, but they spread all the more. Fourth thing that happens, fourth major event in Exodus is Moses is born. Moses is born, and this is a turning point. You can read about this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You know the story, though, right? The Pharaoh, in an attempt to stop the growth of God's people, says, all the little boys that are born must be thrown into the Nile. Well, there's a couple who are from the tribe of Levi, and they have a little boy. They have this little boy, and he's beautiful, and the the mama just can't. She just can't take him to the river and and throw him in. And so she tries to hide him for as long as she can, and for about three months, she's able to keep this quiet, that they've got this little baby in the house, but nobody knows. And that's a miracle in itself, right? 
three months to have a baby in the house and nobody knows about it. We, we can't make it three minutes. We got some new neighbors in, in, in our neighborhood. They were like, yeah, we heard your kids screaming and hollering yesterday when we were moving in. Welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Three months, they hide this little baby. And then when she cannot hide him anymore, she decides she's got to put him in the river. But she fashions this little basket, this little basket out of, out of uh, reeds, and she wipes some pitch and some tar around it to make it waterproof, and she puts the baby in this little basket so that he'll float in the river. Think about this. This goes back to just a couple weeks ago. That seems like a little bitty ark to me, doesn't it, to you? She's going to put him in a little vessel that's going to float on the water that's intended to kill him, and it will save his life. And so she takes this little basket with the little baby boy in it, and she puts it in the river, and it begins to float downstream, and she kind of hides in the bushes and watches it float down and watches it float down, and she's very quiet. And just so happens about that time, the daughter of Pharaoh, the king's daughter, comes down to the river to bathe, and that little basket with Moses in it comes right in front of her, and she sees that little baby who's crying in the basket, and she has pity on this little baby, and she takes him out of the river, right? She rescues him out of the river, the daughter of the king of Egypt, who's trying to kill all these babies. She takes the baby out of the river, and she says, oh, I've got to spare this baby. And the story gets really long, but in a series of strange events, they end up taking that baby back to his mother... She, the, the daughter doesn't know this, but they take the baby back to his mother, Moses' mom, to nurse him until he's old enough to be weaned. And then at that point, they take Moses back to the daughter of Pharaoh and, and give him to her, and she raises him as her own child. In fact, she's the one that gives him the name Moses. He didn't have a name this whole time, evidently, when he was floating down the river. She gives him the name Moses, and she raises him in the house of the king of Egypt. This is an incredible story, is it not? Man, it's one of the best stories in the Old Testament. And I think we can learn a lot from this story. One of the things I think we learn from this story is that sometimes the stage is set for a great move of God before anyone has a clue. Sometimes the stage is set for an incredible movement of God and no one has a clue. It was like that when Jesus was born. It was like that when Jesus was born. Now for us, Christmas is a big deal. When we get to the wintertime and December rolls around, we start thinking a lot about the birth of Jesus. But what I want you to see in the New Testament, the birth of Jesus was really not a big deal for the world. It wasn't as if the whole world was on alert and celebrating the birth of the Messiah. Now, sure, some shepherds, the lowest members of society, were let in on it. And sure, some wise men traveled a long way to celebrate it. But what I want you to see is that the average Joe, he didn't have a clue. The average Joe did not have a clue that the Savior of the world had been born. And I think maybe it's the same for us. That sometimes the stage is set for a great move of God before anyone has a clue. And maybe God is preparing to do something great in our lifetimes. In fact, I was thinking about this as preparing for this and knowing that graduation recognition was going to happen this week. And I'm telling you, when I observe some of those, some of those graduates, I see a special favor from God on them. I see, I see some anointing on some of them that is peculiar. It's unusual. And I have some pretty high expectations for some of those kids. I believe God's going to use them in some big ways. And then I was thinking back even to last week. Last week, it wasn't graduates who stood up there. It was a lot of little babies. 
Little bitty babies who have just been born, and I'm wondering, is is God up to something with maybe one of those babies or one of those graduates that we have no clue about, and we're just ready to say, ooh, celebrate you for graduating high school, or oh, isn't this baby so cute when God is setting the stage, just like he did with Moses, for a fantastic... What if if the next Billy Graham, what if the next Hudson Taylor, what what if the next Adoniram Judson was standing on this stage over the last two weeks? Hallelujah for that, right? Time will tell, and we will be ready to see. We will be ready to see. So sometimes the stage is set for a great move of God before anyone has a clue. Moses is born. Next major event is that Moses identifies with his people. He identifies with his people and then flees to Midian. You probably know this part of the story. It's in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Remember, Moses comes out. He's, he's a grown man at this point. He comes out one day and he sees his brothers and sisters, fellow children of Abraham. And he sees them being oppressed. In fact, he sees an Egyptian... Egyptian man treating one of his fellow Israelites very harshly. And Moses, if you remember, he looks around and he kills the Egyptian. He looks around to make sure no one sees this, but he kills the Egyptian and then he buries him in the sand. Thinks he's gotten away with it, but the next day he goes out and he doesn't see an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting each other. He sees two Hebrews fighting each other. He sees two children of Abraham fighting each other. And he tries to break them up and they say, oh... Who died and made you king over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And at that point, Moses knows it's out. Everyone knows I killed the Egyptian, and the punishment for that is death. And so Moses, in terror, flees from Egypt, goes out into the wilderness to Midian. He is afraid of the consequences of his sin, and so he flees. And what I want you to see in this period is that this crisis for Moses... This fleeing out to Midian was not the end of his story. In fact, in many ways, it's only the beginning of his story. It puts him in a place to encounter God. He flees for his life out into the desert, humbled, broken, desperate. And that's where he encounters God. And that's hopeful for us, right? Because some of us are in those times right now. Fleeing out into the desert because of what we have done. We're humbled, we're broken, we're desperate, and we think it's over. No doubt Moses thought it was over, and then as he's wandering around in the desert, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And his life is forever changed by an encounter with God, and that's our prayer when we go through those dark times, is that we would have an encounter with God that would change our lives, and that's certainly what happens. But before we get to that, let's look at the next major event. One scholar said, meanwhile, back at the ranch. So while, while uh, Moses is out in the desert, the people are still in Egypt. And it's getting worse for them. The oppression, the affliction is only increasing. In fact, in Exodus chapter 2, we see the people cry out to God. And we see God remember his covenant with the people. Look at Exodus 2.23. It says, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. That's the second king of Egypt we've seen die. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel. And God took notice of them. You catch that? They cry out to God. And notice what God does. It says God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God took notice. This is the end of 400 years of silence from God. And this links us back to what we talked about last week in the patriarchal period. This promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this promise of a name, a nation, a place, and a blessing, he remembers it. Well, what's it mean that God remembers his covenant? Had he forgotten about it? 
Had it slipped his mind? No, that's not what the word remember means here. In fact, one scholar says when the Bible says that God remembers someone or God remembers his covenant with someone, it indicates that he's about to take action for that person's welfare. This is not God having forgotten and it coming back to mind. This is God saying, I'm about to do something. Another scholar says it was a remembrance that was more than a mental act. It also included a performance of his word, just as it does in Genesis 8 and 1 Samuel chapter 1. So God remembers. God remembers this covenant. Another scholar says, in the Exodus event, God specifically acts to save Israel because of his covenant promises to Abraham. Often, we become impatient for God to remember his promises to make the world new. But God is not slow in keeping his promise. He is a faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So let's remember that. Here's the application from this period of time. God does not forget. What he has said, he will do. These promises that we are longing for, these promises that we are groaning for, like we read about in Romans, they will come to pass. We can be certain that they will come to pass. It may seem like we're in 400 years of silence right now, but he will keep his promises that he has made to us just like he did to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Next major event. God meets with Moses, and God calls him to deliver the people from bondage. You can read about this starting in chapter 3, this scene with the burning bush. I'll give you an overview of it. God is clear when he speaks to Moses that he... That is, God will be the one to deliver the people. That God will be the one who will bring them out. But God is also clear that he will use Moses to accomplish this. God says, I will, I will, I will. You go talk to Pharaoh. You go tell him to do this. So we learn something here. That God uses human means to accomplish his purpose. God uses human means to accomplish his purpose. He did it back then and he does it today in the gospel. Notice what happens next. Moses hears God say, I'm going to deliver the people. You go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses says, can't do that. Who who am I to do something like that? God, don't you know that I stutter? Don't you know they won't believe me if I go talk to them? Here Moses is just like us, right? And we're just like Moses. We come up with all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons why someone else should do the work. But watch what happens next in this story. God answers Moses. God says, I'm going to deliver them. You go talk to Pharaoh. Moses says, I can't. And God says, you're right. God does not engage Moses by saying, no, 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 Moses, you don't stutter. No, 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 Moses, you really are the right guy. No, 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 Moses, you've got all the gifts and talents that you need to do this. You've got it together. That's not the way God talks to Moses. In fact, it seems like God says, yeah, I know you stutter. I made your mouth. Who who do you think made that mouth that stutters? I did. What God encourages Moses with is not Moses' personal talent. He says, I will be with you. Over and over and over, he doesn't say, Moses, you've got this. He says, Moses, I've got this. Just be faithful to me. Just be faithful to me. I will help you. I will be with you. I will give you words to say. And what I want you to see is all of this is just like the work God is doing in the world today. He is the one who is saving people today. He is the one who redeems. And he has sent us to take the message to the world. And we have stepped back and said, I can't, I can't, I can't. And he says, I know you can't. I'll be with you. 
Read it in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 16. It says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. This is after the resurrection of Christ. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some were doubtful, it says. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is it, right? It's the same. It's the same story. God says, this is my work. I'm going to do it. I'm going to send you to be the messengers, and I will be with you. You know what happens? Moses goes. But he doesn't stop making excuses. You see it later on in the story, even after he has some engagement with the people and with Pharaoh, he continues to make the same excuses. So here's the point for this portion. God will deliver his people, and he will deliver them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has chosen us as the instruments to bring about that deliverance through the preaching of the gospel. We We are often reluctant because we are weak, but when we are weak, he is strong. He has promised to be with us and to help us as we serve him by declaring the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. You're weak. You don't have it all together. You can't do it. You stutter. You're ineloquent. You've got all kinds of frailties, just like me. But he has said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And that makes all the difference in the world, right? Next major event. God redeems his people. Here's where the fun starts. God redeems his people first through a promise. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 9 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go. Under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see how this keeps connecting back to last week? I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. So what's the first thing? How does God redeem them? He gives them a promise. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. But they don't necessarily believe the promise. How else does God redeem? He redeems them through the plagues. Doug, can we throw that up on the screen? You know this story, right? There are ten plagues that come on the Egyptians. And as we look over all of this, we want to see one common thread is that the plagues were exclusive. They were exclusive to Egypt. The Israelites didn't suffer these same plagues. They were selective. In fact, chapter 8, verse 23 says it this way. I'll put a division, God says, a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this will occur. So there are 10 plagues. You can see them there. First is the blood. The Nile River turns to blood and everything dies in it. 
Then there are frogs, then there are gnats, then there are flies, then the livestock all die. Then boils break out on the people. Then hail falls from heaven. Then the locusts come and destroy everything that the hail didn't destroy. And then darkness covers the land for three days. This sounds like fun, right? No. It's terrible, right? It's frightening. It's terrifying. And so when we think about these plagues, we want to ask this question. What was the purpose of these plagues? What was the purpose of these miracles that took place? Well, some people would say, this is what it took to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. It took all ten of these things, and I left the last one out because we'll give it some special attention in a minute. It took all ten of these events to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. I think that's a weak stance. In fact, as you read through the narrative of these events, there are a couple of times where Pharaoh's ready to let the people go. He's had enough, and he's convinced, and he's ready to let the people go. But the scripture says, like it or not, like it or not, the scripture says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. I think if you try to argue that this is what it took to convince Pharaoh, you've missed the point of the narrative of the plagues. God did not need, God did not need ten plagues to convince Pharaoh and get the people out of Egypt. He could have gotten the people out of Egypt a million other ways. So if it was not to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, why ten plagues? Well, a better answer is that these ten plagues are judgment on Egypt. They are judgment specifically on the gods of Egypt. In fact, a close study of these plagues would show some interplay between the gods of the Egyptians and these plagues. The frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock. And so it's as if God is judging the gods of Egypt And the scripture talks about that. Specifically in chapter 6 and chapter 7, you see that kind of language. With great judgments, I'll bring you out. So I think that's a better answer, but I don't think it's the best answer. I think the clearest, most resounding answer to why these plagues came is so that God's name would be worshipped all over the earth. So that it would be clear that Yahweh, He is God. In fact, over and over and over, it says it. So that you will know that I am God. So that you will know that I am God. You can see it in 717, 810, 819, 822, 914, 929, 10, 1 and 2. It's over and over and over again. God wants the Israelites to know that he is the Lord. So he brings these plagues. God wants the Egyptians to know that he is Lord. So he brings these plagues. God wants the world to know that he is Lord. And so he brings these plagues. This was all a display of his power. Got it? All right, we're moving fast, and you guys are doing great. The other thing we noticed in the plagues is that they were not only exclusive, they were superlative. Several times it says, we've never seen hail like this before, and we'll never see it again. We've never seen gnats like this before, and we'll never see them again. We've never seen locusts like this before, and we'll never see them again. These are superlative plagues that he brings. So he saves them, redeems them through the promise, through the plagues, And then the last thing is through the Passover. This is the 10th plague, but it's altogether different. You remember this story, right? God says, I'm going to send the angel of death to kill the firstborn in every household. But then he speaks very specifically to his people and he says, listen, if you'll take a lamb, you'll slaughter that lamb and put some of the lamb's blood on the door of your house. When the angel comes over, he'll pass by you. In other words, there will be a way of escape from this certain death through the blood of a lamb. Thank you. Yes, this is the gospel. There will be a way of escape from this certain death because of the blood of a lamb. If you don't see Jesus in this part of the story, you can't see Jesus. 
This is him all over the place. And so God gives them this prescription. Kill the, kill the lamb. Put it on the door. And when the angel of death passes over, he will pass over you. I want you to see that this is where the gospel is most clear in the Exodus story. I want you to see that this is the context of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus in the upper room with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. They're eating a meal together. You know what that meal is? It's this meal. It's this meal that God instituted for his people so that they would never forget this deliverance. So that they would never forget this night when the angel passed over them. So that they would always remember that blood of a lamb. It's on that night that Jesus says, this blood, it's my blood. I'm giving you a new covenant in my blood. Superior lamb's blood that will certainly rescue you from death. You catch this? So it's the context in which Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection happens. It's also, it's also the shadow of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When we read this stuff in the Old Testament, we talk about them killing that lamb and wiping the blood on their house. We hear about the angel of death passing over. We cannot help but think of Colossians 2 that says these things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. This is just a shadow in the Old Testament of what is to come. But Jesus is the substance of it. So we don't go back and try to kill the lamb. We don't go back and institute the Passover and think that our salvation is in the blood of that lamb. We look to Jesus and we recognize that our salvation is is in the blood of his, his blood. He's the lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's salvation in no one else, right? We've got to remember that. He's the substance of all of this. And this should excite us just a little bit. I want to, I'll post this later on today. There's a great sermon by Beth Moore. Some of you are huge fans of Beth Moore. And she preached at a college conference called Passion in 2014. And she took this Passover meal that was instituted by God so they would remember this event. She took it and she explained in a way that I'd never heard anyone do. She explained Jesus in that Passover meal every step of the way. She said that the Jewish people would often say, if God had just spoken to Abraham, it would have been enough. If God had just passed the covenant on to Isaac, it would have been enough. If God had just called Moses to deliver the people, it would have been enough. Is this right? They kept saying that. All of these events, they said it would have been enough. It would have been enough. It would have been enough. And what you need to know is it wasn't enough. All those lambs that have been killed throughout history, it wasn't enough to save anybody. Only Jesus' blood can save a man. Only Jesus' blood can save a man. And all of this is here in Exodus. Last major event that takes place is the Exodus itself. The people leave and they find favor with the Egyptians and they take all their stuff. Man, that was fast, right? Then, so that we can set things up for next week, after the Israelites leave Egypt, Pharaoh's heart is hardened once more, and he starts to pursue them. They've left, they've escaped, they're out there, and then Pharaoh and his army pursue them. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back before, turn back and camp at Piharoth, between Migdol and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. Wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I'll be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. 
When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. To be continued. Like that's where, we'll, that's where we'll pick it up next week. So you want to come back next week to find out what happens as... This is so hard to do. <laughs> this is so hard to preach. We're flying at a million miles an hour and we're seeing, we're seeing God every step of the way. So where's the gospel in all this? We'll just skip right to the chase. Where's the gospel in all this? This whole story is the shadow of the gospel. The ESV study Bible says it like this. The exodus is the archetypal deliverance of the Old Testament. It is the definitive salvation event that established the identity of Israel as the people of God and demonstrated the character of their deliverer as the God who saves. You talk to a Jewish person, you say, does God save people? They say, absolutely he does. Haven't you read Exodus? He saves people. He is the God who saves, but he does way more than the Exodus. He brings a salvation that is far superior Because the Exodus story is just the shadow of the gospel. Christ is the substance. He is the one who brings us out. Not from slavery, but from death. Because of sins, he brings us out. He's the one that does it in a way that proves that he is God. There's no other way. This is craziness that the Son of God would die in our place. Only God would have a plan like that. And he does it all for his glory. And he does it through human means. This is the craziest part of the story to me. That God has ordained and established that men and women and boys and girls would be saved by hearing the gospel preached. And it's my prayer that that will happen today. I want you to know that you're a sinner and that you deserve judgment because of your sin. I want you to know that God loves sinners. And he demonstrates that love and that he sent Christ to die while we were still sinners. And I want you to know that there is salvation only in Jesus. And that salvation is received not by doing a bunch of good works or performing some kind of sacrifice, That salvation is received as a gift by grace, through faith, believing, trusting, depending on Jesus as the lamb who was slain for you. So that when the certain judgment comes, when the angel of death passes over, it'll pass over you because you have the blood of Jesus covering you. So trust in Jesus today for salvation. Let's stand together and pray. Oh God, I pray that you'll help us digest this today. I pray that you'll work it into our heads and into our hearts and out in our lives. I thank you that you are the God who saves. You have established yourself as a God who rescues by extraordinary means. You are a God who redeems and brings people out. You've done it all throughout the Old Testament, but you have done it supremely, perfectly in Christ. God, I pray that you teach us that today. I pray that men and women and boys and girls will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That you will give them repentance and that you will give them faith to believe and that you will change their lives. God, I pray pray that you bring them out of bondage and death into life, into your kingdom, into the land truly flowing with milk and honey. You are the God who saves, the only one. So we pray that you'll do it today in Christ's name. Amen.